0: Good morning. How's everybody doing today? No, nah, it's just kind of good. All right, we'll go with that. Hey, how many people came out to Impact Day last Sunday? woo Good time, huh? I was blown away at how much we got done. It was, it was super cool serving alongside of you and just watching just significant work getting done. I think actually, though, the, the thing that really stood out to me the most this year um, was just how the relationships, how beautiful those relationships were being formed as we worked together, right? We came and we, uh, we worked alongside people, maybe people that we've seen every Sunday, right? We've sat next to each other. We know each other, but we don't really know each other. You know what I mean? And there was something just, I think, really beautiful about when you start working next to somebody, you start borrowing their tools, maybe kind of gently mocking them for their paintbrush stroke or whatever it is that that was happening, that, that really we're drawn into this, this deeper, this beautiful, profound unity. In fact, I think that's part of how God created us. He created us in such a way that we long, we desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to be serving with each other. And the passage we're gonna read today talks about how we are called to the building up to the maturity of the church. And in a very practical way, I was thinking this week about uh, the uh, church in Barcelona called the Sagrada Familia, right? Maybe some of you have heard of this church. It's a church that uh, 200 years ago, they started building this church in 1832. And they've been continuously building this church uh, for almost two hundred years it 's still not even complete they 're not even planning on completing it until twenty like twenty eight and I could just imagine if you are a person that you 've come every year for thirty years and you 're like part of tower number thirteen right and you come and you lay the bricks for that that tower and for thirty years, you feel like, will anything ever get finished? Will we ever get done with this thing right and and really 200 years for this building to be built is much more concrete. It's much more easy to get our head around than being part of the spiritual body of Christ that for 2,000 years is being built up. That, and we know that will not be completed until Christ returns again and, and it is completely finished. And yet that is what this passage is calling us to. It's calling us to participate to give our lives to this calling, this calling which is in the growth, the maturity, the building up of God's church. And and that's both universal, both Christians everywhere around the world, that's the church of God, the body of Christ, but also locally in our expression of that here at Bridges. So let's, uh, if you wanna open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter four, uh, verses one through 16. Ephesians four, one through 16. The... uh, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul has really focused on the theology of, of who we are and what Christ has done for us. And then the second three chapters of this book, he starts to get very practical on if this is true, if Christ is who he is and has done this and he has created you in this way, then what are we to do as a response of it? And I think that's really what chapter four really starts diving into. So if you've got your Bibles open, it says this. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope. That belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we have all attained the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about with every wind of doctrine by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful things, schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint for which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I know there was a lot in this passage. It's it's a deep passage. But I think if we could summarize it, it would be that you have a calling, you have a role to play, and it is to be a part of this unified body of Christ that is maturing and growing in a knowledge and faith in who God is. It starts right off, it says, you to walk in your calling. And I love this because it's this reminder. Our first point here today is that we all have a calling. Sometimes in churches, I think we, we use this word calling to just mean some sort of highly specific kind of uh, roles in the church, right? Like pastors are called or, or maybe you have some specific calling in your life, but it's this like specialized kind of idea sometimes. And I don't think that's biblical at all. In fact, I think this is a reminder that we all are given a calling and our job is to walk in that calling. But this can actually kind of go um, against a little bit of our popular achievement culture around us, Right? We, we know from early age that if, if you want to be a doctor, you don't just get to put on a white coat and start practicing medicine, right? If you want to be a pilot, you can't just go down and get a cool little hat and a little wings that you put on yourself. Like in our society, there's achievements, there's tests, there's credentials, there's things that you have to achieve in order to receive callings in our world. Yet this passage tells us that it is fully from the gift of God that we have been given a calling that is nothing that we have to do to earn. We cannot achieve it. It was freely given to us. And yet, this calling requires our entire life of sacrifice to it. Our job is not to earn this calling, but it's to walk in it. And we're A church. We're filled with different people with different skills and different gifts, and we all contribute differently. Our callings all look a little bit differently, but I think the goal of those callings, as shown in this passage, is all the same, and that is to contribute to the maturity, to the growth of this body. And I love just the way this looks for us as a church. I think this is why we do things like Impact Day, right? It's because we know that, that maturing as a church is not just something that we do as we learn stuff together, but it's something that has to be lived out, it has to be acted on in our life, right? And so we come together and, and we learn and discover more about who Jesus is and what he's called us to, and then together we live that out together and, and we mature together. I dig that it uses the the illustration of maturing and really as of a body maturing because I think we can all relate to this, right? All of us have matured at some level in life. Some of us got a little ways to go, right? We still got a lot of maturing to do. Some of you maybe have over-matured, uh, but we we're all maturing and we can relate to that. We can understand what it means to be a body that's growing up. I've got a two-year-old at home. She just celebrated her second birthday yesterday. And I love my little two-year-old. I love who she is. I love the stage of life she is at right now. But if 30 years from now my two-year-old is still a two-year-old, I'm in trouble, right? If she's a 32-year-old little brat that throws tentrum, temper tantrums, that, that's a problem. And in the same way, if we're a church that is not maturing, that is not growing up, that is not developing, that's a problem. And so God has called us to this calling uh, of, of maturing together. And, and in this, I think Paul gives us kind of some specific attributes that, that it looks like for us to be a church, a people that are maturing together. He, he says that, that he's calling us to humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing. And in our notes, I call this that our calling is a walk with an anti strut right? We all know what a strut is, right? A strut is where you get your chest out. You try to try to prove yourself, you know, just in the way you walk. You want to show that, that you have value, that you mean something. I used to live in San Jose right next to uh, Monterey Highway. And if you've ever been down Monterey Highway at night, you know, it's a pretty sketchy place. And about once a month, I'd get this bug that I was going to go for a jog. And it was almost always at night. And I would jog, and as I'm going through my neighborhood, I'm just kind of jogging my normal jog. But when I hit Monterey Highway, my chest went out. You know what I mean? I got my strut jog on, and I was, I was running past, like, the drug dealers and the pimps and the prostitutes. I wanted to prove something, that I belonged there, that that was my neighborhood, right? It was my defense mechanism. It was protecting my pride. It was saying, this is me. You don't want to mess with me. And the problem is sometimes we bring that attitude to the church, To each other. And we we have our defense mechanisms up. And part of being part of this unified body of Christ is putting down our swagger, is putting down our defense mechanisms that protect our pride. And it's allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and broken and gentle with each other. And that's what we see here. We see these attributes, this humility and patience and gentleness and forbearance, tolerance. And I think as I see those, I don't think those are the goal of the church as much as that's what keeps us working together, right? It's like, again, I'm not mechanical, but I understand that a motor needs to have oil in it to move smoothly, right? And I think humility and gentleness and patience, this is kind of the the oil in our motor as a church. This is what allows us to mature together. So let's look specifically at, at some of these attributes, right? The first thing is humility, and I think humility is something for us that's easy for us to kind of like over-romanticize. We like to picture the, the super powerful, successful person that's still pretty down to earth, and we say, now that's humility. But I think humility is actually something more profound than that, something that gets really sketchy if we try to apply it as a church. In the time that this book was written, about a third of the, the Roman world lived in slavery of some sort. And within the slave community, as I understand it, they're they're developed this culture out of really out of being forced into this culture uh, of submission and just fear and and really what was identified as humility. And so when Paul is calling our church to humility, he's calling us to take on that attitude, not because we are forced to be in that attitude, but because of what it will do for the body of Christ, the building up of each other. And I think when we we look at this seriously, it challenges all of us. None of us were born humble, right? There's no humble kids. This is a trait that we have to develop, we have to work on. It's a muscle that we have to work out in our life to to be people who are humble. The next thing he gets to here is he gets to gentleness. And I think gentleness is a, a beautiful concept, but a concept that's really hard to actually do. I think especially for us as guys, right? This is not a value. Gentleness is not a value that's really elevated in our culture. I mean, look at our heroes, like our Bruce Lees and our um, uh, uh, James Bonds, and maybe, you know, for the baby boomers out here, your Liam Neesons, right? Like, these dudes are not gentle people. These guys are dudes. These are guys that get shot, the bullet out themselves and sew themselves back up, right? These are, these are not people that show a lot of gentleness in their life. But we also know that these people aren't real. They're fictional characters, right? They're one-dimensional, that all of us have have this vulnerability in our life. And I think gentleness doesn't mean weakness, but I think it does mean vulnerability. I think it means putting down our defense mechanisms. It's allowing ourselves to hurt with each other. It's allowing ourselves to be empathetic with each other. It's allowing ourselves to connect emotionally with each other. And I think this goes to the very heart of who Jesus was, that though he was God, came down to earth to share life with humanity, to be broken and sacrificed for us. Gentleness, love, compassion, and empathy. And this is a trait, an attribute that we need to strive for as followers of Jesus. Another thing he calls us to here is patience. Now, I think I used to be a pretty patient person. In fact, I've even had people tell me I was patient. But if you were to be in my house last night, at about bedtime, you would not see a patient man, right? I'm trying to put the girls to bed, and they're in that I can do it by myself phase, And I'm screaming at them over who's gonna put the pajamas on, right? Like it's I got no patience, it seems like. And I think this is especially true for all of us. When we have an area where we feel competent in and we're trying to work alongside of somebody that we deem as incompetent, how difficult is it to show patience to that person? How difficult is it to wait and allow them to do it at their own pace? And this, I think, is especially relevant for us as we are maturing together because we all mature at different levels, at different speeds, in different areas of our spiritual walk. And part of being patient is giving people the time to allow God to change them from the inside out. The last thing here is this idea of forbearance or tolerance. It says to bear with one another in love. And I think forbearance is probably a word that most of us don't use on a daily basis. It's something we're not used to, right? And I think a better word for this is actually tolerance. This idea that we put up with each other, with the weird awkwardness, the brokenness, the sinfulness, the messed upness of each of us that makes us human, it's giving each other the space in that and loving people through that. For us as Christians, this idea of tolerance is not some new social buzzword. This is connected to our ethics and has been for 2,000 years. Now, I think this, in some ways, is even more challenging, though, than kind of the popular idea of, of tolerance that, that exists out there, because for those of us as Christians, we still hold to absolute truth. We hold to uh, an absolute morality and, and a belief in the oneness of God and who he is and what he has called us to, yet we forgive each other, yet we bear with one another in love, yet we give each other space in these things. I know a time in my life that I've been shown this kind of tolerance. Have you ever been with us, any of the groups that have gone down and put on the summer camps for the orphans down in Mexico? You know that by the end of those trips, we all need a little bit of patience and tolerance, right? And I remember one particular year, I had been burning, unbeknownst to me, piles of poison oak. And I'm coming home... And I'm covered in rashes, and I'm hot, and I'm tired. And I was a grumpy bus driver. I was driving the bus, and I was just passive aggressive and angry. At every stop, I'm like, you better do your stuff quick and get back in the bus, right? And, and I remember that was a time that our team showed me great tolerance. They didn't excuse my actions. They didn't justify what I did. But they forgave me. They loved me through it. They bared with me. And I think that should be a marker of who we are as a church, that we bear with one another, that we tolerate with each other, that we love each other. Because, see, the Christian life is something that can't be done in isolation, that we do this together. And your next point here in in the notes is that our calling is a team sport, right? I remember growing up playing team sports. I love team sports because we could all kind of play a little bit different role. We all had different skills, different abilities, but we were all working towards the same goal, the same thing that we were trying to accomplish. We were responsible for each other. And in the same way, I think the Christian life is that way, that that we are responsible for each other, that you are responsible for my formation, my growth, and I am responsible for yours, that we care about each other, that we, we have this shared goal in mind. And I think this is one of the areas, actually, I have found the most joy of being part of this church, that there are people in this church who have shaped deeply the way I view God, that have challenged my view of God and said, you need to have a bigger picture of who God is. There are other people who have challenged me in my ethics, in my morality. They've said, you need to look at these areas different. There have been people who have influenced the way I raise my kids. There are all these people that contribute to my life, that contribute to my maturity. And hopefully, I'm a part of their growth and their maturity also. And I think that one of the beautiful things about this is that we're not just this team sport that's kind of operating on our own. Right, this passage makes it very clear that, that more than just our coach, like a coach I, I think is too small of an illustration for this, that Christ is our head, that he is over all, that he is working all things out for his glory. In fact, all the gifts that we've been given, everything that we have is because of him. If you kind of look at verses 7 through 10, I, these can be kind of a, a confusing passage, right? This is the part where it's talking about that that Jesus came down. He descended and he ascended, and there's all this going up and going down, and it can be easy to kind of lose the point in the middle of this. But as I read this, I think the the main thrust of this, this section is simply put that the work of God, the mission of God is not just found in Jesus coming to earth, but also that he ascended on high. In fact, it said that he ascended above the heavens, that all glory is his, that he has accomplished everything. And now through his greatness, he has given back gifts to us for the work of ministry. And even to to kind of make it more profound, he takes Psalm 68, right? That's the quote that's found in the middle of this, Psalm 68, 18. And he kind of takes this passage a little bit out of context and flips it around a little bit. Again, under the guidance, I, I believe, of the Holy Spirit, So in Psalms, it says that that he, kind of referring to God, ascended on high and led a host of captives and all men gave him gifts. But then when Paul quotes this, he says that he ascended on high, led the the train of captives and gave gifts to all men. And, And I think what's beautiful about this is both of these are true, right? The fact is that God is building his church That every tongue, tribe, and nation will come and will worship him. And when we worship him, we're bringing glory to God. Yet in that also, God is also giving gifts to all men. He's allowing us to be a part of his kingdom, be a part of his work. We're not just bystanders watching this all unfold. That he has called us into this work, his work. And I think that's a beautiful picture. So let's look specifically at a little bit of what this looks like for us as a church. And the next point here is that we are all one. And what a profound concept this is. It's not just that we're working kind of together on something. It's not just that we, we have some shared vision, but that we are actually one, that our connection, our identity is one. All right, so do me a favor. Look around the room. Do it quickly. Don't, like, let people see you looking at them because it could get awkward. And find somebody in the room that you feel like maybe you don't connect with. You don't know them, maybe. Maybe you feel like you're different than them. Maybe you feel, maybe it's even somebody in here that you have issue with, right? Somebody that maybe you disagree with, that, that you feel like you have conflict with. Don't look at them too long. We don't want them to see it and create awkwardness, okay? But just kind of look around. And now as I read this passage, verses uh, three through six, I want you to think specifically of that person and realize that our unity, our oneness, is, is deeply connected to who we are says this, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that you belong to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If you are a follower of Jesus, that person that you are thinking about is one with you and you are one with them. That unity we share is more than just superficial. It is deep and theological and drives down to the core of who we are. And the core, not just of who we are, but the core of who God is. See, look at this passage. It's talking about very Trinitarian language. It's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's talking about the salvation of Jesus. It's talking about God the Father, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, don't don't get lost in this, or don't, like, kind of check out because this is too... Theological, because this is deep and is profound, and it affects the way we live deeply. So, in eternity past, God has existed in perfect unity with Himself, in perfect relationship with Himself. He needed nothing to make Him happy. It wasn't like God was sitting back in heaven and got bored and needed more relationship, so He created us. No, He was perfectly complete in His relationshipness with Himself. Yet He chooses to create humanity. And not only does he create us, it's not like he just creates us and sets us out on a shelf. He creates us and then invites us into unity with him. And we are invited into unity with God himself and with each other. And that is our identity. And that is why I think this is so crucial that we wrestle with this, that we think about this. That in eternity, we are going to spend eternity in true, perfect, relational unity with each other. Now we're not there yet. Right, Some of us got a long way to work and to go. But we can start practicing that and experiencing that now. That is part of who we are, and we get to live into that. Unity throughout Scripture is not really, I don't think, is something that we have to achieve. It's something that was given to us. The focus of this passage really is that it's our job to pursue it, to focus on it, to value it to desire it, to want it, because it's already the truth of who we are. So we are one. But also, we are one, but we also are still individuals, right? This passage, it talks about in verse seven that it is by the grace of God that we have been given individually, given gifts out of the abundance of who God is of who Jesus is. Out of his glory, we've been given these gifts, that we are one body, but we all have different parts, that we have different roles to play, that we have different jobs to do. And I think all this speaks to the creativity and the beauty of God, that he would design each of us in such a way that we can contribute to each other for his glory, for his greatness, that the world will see what God is doing in our lives and how we are working together, how we are developing, and it'll bring glory to God. Because we are one, yet we still have these individual responsibilities and roles to play. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about the entire medical team that must have been a part of Steph Curry's knee recovery situation, right? Like. I got to imagine that there was probably dozens of individuals, different doctors and surgeons and chiropractors and physical therapists and acupuncturists and you know whatever else went into recovering his knee so that in an incredibly short amount of time, he could go back to playing at the level he is. And just, I was thinking about the, the whole Golden State team, that it's really not just the starting lineup that are working together as a team. It's all of these different components that are contributing to that, that franchise. And in the same way, I think for us, as, in a much more profound way, actually, for us as a church, that the church is much more than the individuals that show up on our bio page on the Bridges website, right? In fact, here Jesus says that, that God has given apostles and teachers and prophets and evangelists and shepherds, and what does he say their job is? Does he say your job then is to do all the work of the church so that people grow up and develop? no. And it says here that that the job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the body will mature. Just that reminder that every one of us has a role, has a place to play in this church, that it is not one person's job, it is not even a group of people's job, that it is all of us, that we together live out the calling that God has placed in our life, this calling to, to, to the maturity of the body. So let's get kind of specific of what this is, and I think that our calling really is this mutual fight for maturity, right? It's this idea that, that together in love, that we're all working together so that we can grow into the adulthoodness that God has called us to. In fact, it says that, that when we do this, that we are measured up against the fullness of Christ, and what an amazing picture this is, that the church is to be measured up against the fullness of Christ, I picture, like, a teenage kid, like, standing back to back with their dad, you know, always trying to figure out how tall they are compared to their dad, and we stand back to back, not just with, like, the earthly image of Christ, not just with our picture of who Jesus was, but the fullness of Christ, everything he is. And when I think of that, it reminds me, first off, that we got a ways to go. I look at bridges, and I don't see the fullness of Christ, so we can never be complacent. I don't think we can stand back and say, hey, we got a pretty good thing going on here. Let's just be happy with where we're at. No, to our maturity, we still got places to grow. we still got things that God wants to do in our life, but also it reminds me just of the work that God has promised to do in our church, that he's not done with us yet. In fact, it says that, that we are a body and Christ is our head. Uh, I mean, we've all kind of seen little babies, right? And they're always the same, right? They've got these massive heads and these tiny little undeveloped bodies. And that's so important because that massive head contains a relatively large brain compared to the rest of the body. And it's because we need those brains to, to develop and to grow into all the things that are required for maturity as a little kid. And for us as a church, we have the massive head. We have Christ himself, That has given us everything we need to mature. So sometimes I think our churches, us, you know, bridges, looks a little bit like one of those babies. We got these tiny little arms, right? We got these little tiny legs, that protruding belly, you know, and we've got this giant head, which is Christ. And I think that should give us a lot of confidence and hope that Christ, who has begun a work in us, will continue it on to completion. That he has got a plan for us, plan for his church, So it's about us growing up, maturing. So again, more specifically, what does maturity for us look like? What does it look like when a church matures? And I think it happens when we focus on faith and knowledge of Jesus, right? That's what it says, to equip the saints for works of good service, so for the maturing or the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That, That while we contribute to each other's lives, that we contribute to this shared faith that we hold. this this maturity that deepens and becomes more profound, this knowledge of who God is that continually deepens and strengthens. And we do that together, and we contribute to each other's lives. And again, this is not, I don't think, something that's just strictly done in an academic sense. I think this is something that's lived out in our life, that that a, a, a unity of faith, that a knowledge of Jesus is something that we have to learn both academically. We have to learn through sermons and Bible studies and reading of God's word and reading books that encourage us and shape us. But it also comes when we act those things out together, that we live those amongst each other, that we encourage each other. This is why as a church that we invest in so many ministries, that we invest in children's ministries so that they can grow and mature in a knowledge and a faith of who he is. This is why we as a church try to, to create areas that we can grow and mature in as a body. And so this knowledge is crucial, this, this faith is crucial. But the opposite is also important for us to, to be aware of, right? That the thing that can arrest our spiritual maturity so fast is bad theology. Bad theology arrests our spiritual maturity and we have to be careful as a church to not allow bad False teachings to creep up within the church. I'm always amazed when I read scripture how often the warnings are not just protect yourself from stuff outside the church, right? Be careful of the world, be careful of the false beliefs that are out there. But so often it's about the false beliefs that can creep up from within the church, right? The lies that tell us that, you know, really we are the God. It's really about serving us, what makes us happy, what brings us contentment. It's about our success, all our, our this, our that. You need to somehow earn your own salvation. All these are the lies, I think, that come up within the church. And since we are, are integrated into each other's lives, since we're responsible for each other, we need to encourage and point this out to each other. And if we don't, we become, the, the, the illustration you used here is a child that's tossed to and from in the waves. I don't know about you guys, but that's a crazy picture to think about. I don't like even thinking about a child being out stranded in the waves being tossed to and from, but it's a vivid picture, and I think it's a picture that reminds us of what can happen if we allow uh, our theology to slip. But again, going back to the attitude, the attributes that make us the church, that when we correct each other, when we encourage each other, we do it not out of a place of pride and arrogance, but we do it from a place of humility, of gentleness, of patience, of tolerance, supporting each other, giving each other time, working with each other. As I kind of think about this passage, I think the application is is pretty simple, really. The application being that we all have a calling that we've been given freely, and it's our job to walk in that calling, and walking in that calling means that we are an active part in the maturing of the body of Christ, in the maturing of each other. And so I think maybe the question that we should be asking ourselves that we should be challenged with today is how are we contributing to the maturity of the body of Christ? As we grow and mature, are we part of other people's lives? Are they a part of our life? And asking God to expound that and to to teach us even more deeply what it means to be a part of this body that together is maturing. So let's pray. God, we just praise you. We thank you that you have allowed us, that you have given us the gifts to serve you, to obey you, to follow you, to be a part of each other's lives. We praise you for that. We praise you that you have invited us into unity with you. Um, We know that we're not worthy, that we've done nothing to deserve that, yet you've given it to us. We praise you for that, God. God, we pray that you continue to challenge us, to shape us, to convict us, of what it means to be a part of your body and the role that you're calling us to play. In Jesus' name, amen. you for listening to the Bridges Community Church sermon podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.